0: Well, welcome everyone uh hello amit wonderful to meet you so for listeners of the india explained podcast who are still around and who still have you know maybe not, not hit unsubscribe because we've been on a long uh, hiatus uh welcome back um you know we've been on a break as i said but one of the ways we are kick-starting the podcast again is through a separate series in addition to the regular chats that banti and i have we are starting something called india explained conversations which will be with Uh, you know, interesting, creative, thoughtful, insightful people from all walks of life. Uh, their views centered on India, but not limited exclusively to India, given this sort of cliche with some truth that we live in a global world and inaugurating this series. I'm delighted to have with me today, Amit Verma, uh, Amit, you know, we'll need no introduction to people in the podcast world, in the media world. He is a writer, he's been a journalist, he's a blogger, he's a podcaster. He's a thinker. I will only mention a couple of things before we jump into the sort of freewheeling conversation on, you know, politics, art, culture, media in India and the world that uh, I followed Amit's uh, blog, India Uncut for many years. I follow his, uh, uh, his newsletter. Now I follow his podcasts and, uh, you know, I had the privilege of meeting Amit five or six years ago, I think 2016, 17 in India. And we, he reached out, and you know I was on social media and he said let's meet It was very kind of him we wound up meeting for we planned to meet for lunch I remember near Kolaba sometime a wonderful restaurant right across the Taj I forget its name terrible memory sort of hitting you know middle age and all of that but we we met around maybe 12 12 and by the we wound up hanging out for about 10 hours I think. We went from Kolaba to Worli, met another friend of Amit's, a lovely chap, just and it was as if, you know, I'd known him all, all, all my life. Uh, so it was a 10 hour, uh, you know, uh, wonderful chat interrupt, not interrupted, but punctuated by wonderful meal So Amit, delighted to have you here and thank you. Uh, so let's just you know jump into this. I, uh, uh I, I want to just start first by getting your sense of like, what is the lie of the land right now in India, according to you? And I'll just leave it at that. And we can, you know, take it from there.
1: Yeah, first of all, I'm, I'm I'm just so happy to be talking with you again. And, and that was a very memorable day we kind of spent together. And it, I, I just loved how, you know, sometimes you meet someone and you just get into a groove. You're like right there, you're meeting them for the first time, but you're just in the groove. And uh, uh, so that was a great day. And I hope we have many more days like that. The lay of the land, boss, is really depressing. The, the, the lay of the land is that, you know, uh, on Twitter, it often seems as if there are two sides. But if you actually look at our society and you look at what's happening around you, it makes me realize more and more that I am just in this small bubble. That, you know, all my life, I've grown up in this English-speaking urban bubble in India and had the illusion that, hey, we are broadly liberal, we are broadly secular, theek hai, you know, Baki the fringes hai. And then you you realize what a small bubble you are and what the country is really like. And an illustration of this, uh, Rohit, is uh, that, uh, uh, you know, the recent judgments, which I know disturbed you and we will no uh, no doubt talk about, like releasing Bilkis Bano's Killers. Uh, one thug got, Srikantyagi, got released on the day that we are uh, uh, recording this, I believe. And even earlier, if you look at things like Pragyat Thakur being made an MP and uh, so on and so forth, all of these are not actions that are being uh, done because somebody high up is making a point. All of these are actions because the people making these decisions know that they will be popular, right? My good friend Elanjana Roy posted a tweet um, earlier today uh, where, uh, you know, and we are recording this, uh, what's the date today, on 21st? 21st. Uh, Twenty. 21st October, yeah. And she posted a tweet about how some editor somewhere told her that these releases and these decisions are being taken because elections are coming. And that indicates that these are popular uh, decisions. And that indicates how far the othering of Muslims has gone in India at this point in time, right? And, you know, so the predominant sort of politics of the time is this anti-Muslim strain that is kind of... Playing out where, uh, you know, uh, and it it almost feels like it got ramped up this year, where almost, you know, earlier this year, there was a phase where almost every day for two or three weeks, there was some damn incident somewhere uh, happening uh, and people just behaving with impunity. And as Nilanjana pointed out in, in the Bilkis Bano case, releasing these people is not just a slap on the face of all Muslims, but a slap on the face of all women you know you're releasing people who yeah. gang raped yeah. this woman who slaughtered a family who killed a baby in front of her and you're releasing them and people are garlanding them and they're cheering and all of that and so you know i i don't even want to get into things like you know what was a court thinking or whatever where those forget all of that this is a popular sentiment and it is um, it is depressing and uh, I, I don't know what to say beyond that
0: well, you raise you raise many excellent points, and you know, I, my thinking, my gut reaction was this comes from the top. But the point you're making is that it is these decisions are taken semi autonomously, if not entirely autonomously, with the knowledge also that they will have, if not the blessings, outright blessings, there will be no pushback from the top, and that's a very interesting distinction. That raises one point in itself, which is a separate issue, which is just about you know the very interesting structure of. Accountability and deniability that the Hindu right works it right, works with. They, it, you can you know uh, the high ups can always say, "But I had nothing to do with it." But you know it's all sort of coming with their blessings. Let me just pursue this a little further. I know it's a depressing state of affairs, uh, and I was you know exactly of the same thinking mindset as you. I I always you know as I sort of grew older and and by virtue of you know just being in academia, reading and, and working on secularism. The idea of India as this bastion of, you know, religious tolerance, pluralism always seemed a bit of a somewhat of a romantic, exceptionalist narrative to me. But I always believed that there was some kind of underlying basis of truth to it, right? And and to me when I think back on uh, you know 2010, 2012, that time or two thousand twelve to fourteen maybe I would say, uh, I think like so many people, including people with right-wing sympathies, did not think that Narendra Modi would even be the prime ministerial candidate um, and that Indians would not stand for it. That was the belief across the political spectrum. Uh, So again, it's the question I want to run with here is that was that just a kind of like fiction that was sustaining us all of this while? You know, one Akeel Bilgrami in an early piece he wrote on Indian secularism said that secularism was basically just a holding process. And his point was that it could not gain you know, widespread legitimacy. But there have been others who have suggested that, uh, you know, in its formal institutional sense, no matter how battered it seems, uh, there is still perhaps something in Indian society that coheres. I'm not optimistic because to me, the terrifying thing is, you know, neither the Ahmadmi Party nor the Congress, barring a few kind of remarks from Rahul Gandhi, uh, which is another story in itself, have come out against this. And this is this incident is so beyond the pale that it has, you know, I talk to people in India, I talk to people here, it's just, you know, just sort of stunned everyone. So was it, you know, is it just one of, you know, those Tom and Jerry cartoons, uh, or those uh, Disney cartoons road where the guy goes off the cliff, but he keeps running in the air. And only when he looks down and realizes that there's no ground beneath his feet, he then plummets <laughs> is, is, is that kind of, What's been happening? Have we been, you know, uh, uh, living this notion of pluralism as a, uh, you know, based on this illusion, whether in the urban context or the rural context or the semi-urban context?
1: Yeah, great points. And I love the image of uh, you and I sort of careening down a cliff uh, once we look down. And so here's the thing, a couple of points. One is that... uh, You know, there's that old cliche or whatever you say about India, the opposite is also true. I was once uh, chatting with JP Narayan um, and uh, episode 149 of The Scene and the Unseen, and we were, uh, and and, and I was making the point that we are a deeply illiberal society, and the reasons are so obvious, you know, uh, the way women are treated, uh, our, our caste problem. Uh, deeply liberal. But um, what JP said was, he agreed of course, but he said that, uh, looked at it another way, you could also say that we are deeply liberal in the sense that uh, if you look at our um, uh, if you look at our cuisines, if you look at our clothes, you know, uh, the Prime Minister himself wears, uh, you know, clothes of an Islamic origin, uh, the elegant Yeah. Uh, if, if If you look at our languages, if you look at all of these things, we are a delightful melting pot. So somewhere in our lived experience also, there is some uh, liberalism. So I think the hope that uh, many like you and I once had or the mistaken belief that many like you and I once had wasn't entirely without foundation. There was something to that. However, here's what we missed, uh, and this is a theme I keep going back to uh, on my show with various guests: is that at that at our founding moment, or at our founding moment of this particular young nation state, um, in the late forties, uh, the path that we chose was to look at society, realize how deeply illiberal it is, and decide that we will change it from the top down. So you have a liberal constitution, not as liberal as I would like, but more liberal than society, being imposed upon an illiberal society. And there's a separate meta-question of how liberal can that imposition be. But, uh, and uh, the expectation was that eventually, um, you know, these values will percolate down. That in some sense, as Madhav Chopra says, the constitution is uh, a pedagogic exercise as well that you are you are uh, you you know in a sense teaching a society how to behave and uh, in hindsight that seems so incredibly arrogant and bound to fail because if you think of it from the top down it's not going to work now Gandhiji of course said that uh, it has to happen from the bottom up culture has to change from within and there is some truth to that but there is also the problem that as Ambedkar correctly said our villages were and are uh, you know dens of vice and uh, you know advice and bigotry and uh, whatever I forget his precise words but we know how they are. Uh, you know I had a recent episode with the great Dalit scholar Chandrabhan Prasad where he talks about the ongoing battle which lasted decades between village republics and the Indian republic which tells you how hard it is to change culture. Now I think what has happened is that not only uh, was society not changed from the top down but society politics has finally caught up with society. The politics that you see today is not an aberration You know, the bigotry that you see in our politics, uh, the hatred that you see in our politics, uh, misogyny that you see in our politics has all been part of our society. You know, Akshay Mukul has a great book on the Gita Press, a history of the Gita Press, and I had a, yeah. an episode with him as well. Speaks about how literally for more than a 100 years now, these have been life political issues. You know, love jihad and cow slaughter. These are not issues of today or 10 years ago or 8 years ago. These did not start in 2014. These were happening in the 1910s. These were happening in the 1920s, right? So uh, our societies always kind of had uh, these uh, dominant strains within it and uh, and and that's kind of where we are and i think that is also a wake up call for people like you and me that we should not feel entitled to our vision of india ki secular or liberal hona be. Yeah, yeah. no we have to fight for it we have to fight for it in the yeah. battle place of ideas and not get complacent ki our constitution hai, laws hair, courts hai. We, we can't do that we have to uh, if if we have a particular vision of what we want india to be we have to um, fight for it and fight for it in the marketplace of ideas and uh, you know, um and do what we have to there.
0: Okay. So wonder wonderful, wonderful points. And I, if there's so many things, I mean each of these strands I could respond to, but I will find that urgent. Let me move here to you know the the role of uh, the internet and social media, right, in in uh, in all of this. Right. We we know that there's a sort of clear recent record of Facebook uh, in places like Myanmar and Sri Lanka being complicit in genocide. Uh, you know, we, we see the stuff that happens. I don't think any of us, either of us need to like recount or, you know, the kind of trolling that happens or the, the kind of takeover of the Twitter space and the online space by, by um, uh, uh, you know, by the Hindu right, the BJP IT cell and so on, shutting down all kinds of voices. Um, there's also something that I found very disturbing, which is this, you know, whole phenomenon of the circulation of spectacular violence as it were, where on the one hand, yes, it becomes a form of evidence, but there's almost this sadistic glee. It's part of this, you know, apparatus of ritual humiliation of Muslims where, or Dalits, where people are subjected to gross violence. And then those clips circulate online. Now, in combining that with you know the point that that uh, uh, you, you you mentioned in your conversation with with Chandrababu Prasad uh, and the the insights that this is something that is not new right and this was always happening it's just that we were in our bubbles cut off from it uh, what role has social media really played in fomenting and exacerbating this violence and I this is an area I work on but one of the points that you know someone another scholar made to me is that. He said, you know, we we, perhaps the role, the, the role that the power that we attribute to social media in the changes we see in India, the social, political, cultural changes might be exaggerated. So in your understanding, you know, what what how have the sort of to use that very crude dichotomy, the online and offline interacted and What has the role of social media been in leading to this state of affairs in the Indian context? So, I
1: think social media has played a huge role in this. Now, on the whole, I think the internet and technology and the connectivity that we have, which can allow people like you and I to come together and talk, is on the whole uh, hugely net positive. However, uh, a large chunk of our current problems... uh, are because of social media, and I don't even think that they are willful. That social media is willfully evil or something, right? It just worked out All this right, way. Correct. So let me like dig a little bit into this. One, there is a great book of sociology by Timur Kuran called um, "Public Lies, Private Truths," or the other way around, "Private <laughs> Truths, Pub." I think it's "Public Lies, Private mm. Truths," where uh, he, uh, yeah. where he uh, came up with the phrase "preference falsification." Now, what is preference falsification? Mm. Let's say that. Uh, uh, you know i hold a belief that people around me won't hold um you know i will not state my belief because i will not want to get into trouble or embarrass somebody or be looked down upon and so on the example uh, uh, quran gives i think is the uh, the soviet era where uh, you know for a long period of time no one dissented openly because they didn't know there were other dissenters they thought if you know i am the only one to dissent i'll get knocked down and then Right. There was suddenly what Quran calls a preference cascade, that you suddenly realize that there are other dissenters, that almost everyone is a dissenter, it's okay to dissent, and then they all express their dissenter. Mm. So to the outside observer, it seems that all these people have suddenly come to the same conclusion all at once. But it's not all at once. They held it all the time, and mm. it's only now that is found expression. Now, uh, I think a similar thing ha- uh, happened in India via social media that I think many uh, people were... Had beliefs that they would not express uh, in public. Now, you know, we can in a pejorative way call them bigoted or uh, sexist or whatever, uh, and, and and that's true, you know, and but they wouldn't say those things in public because you know uh, it, it just felt that you know you'll be looked down upon if you say that and what social media did was you suddenly went on twitter and facebook and realized that hey there are many other people who share these beliefs and hey they're very loud and uh you know the more and more people get validation the more and more they start expressing and suddenly even in the real world they look around and they realize that this is it they are the majority the you know that um a feeling of you found your tribe you belong to it that you don't have to be ashamed of you know whatever disgusting belief you hold um so you had a preference cascade that i think played a large part in um uh, you know building the modi wave and bringing him to power and uh, all of that and uh, uh, and that uh, you know is one thing that's responsible for our current times now what also happens because of social media is that there is an incentive to swing to the extremes in the sense that it, let's say i go online Right. I want to belong. I want to be liked. So I find a tribe. I'm part of a tribe. Right. Then how do I raise my status within the tribe? I can only do it by swinging to the extremes, by attacking people on the other side, never engaging with arguments, just attacking people or by attacking people on my own side for not being pure enough. Right. Which is why everybody is uh, hating on centrist, for example, whoever they are. And, uh, uh, and what that does is that that uh, leads to the uh, discourse becoming toxic focused on people rather than ideas and policies and thoughts. And everybody is incentivized to swing to the extreme. And the extreme is a crazy place. Like if you remember last year, those uh, uh, Dharam Sansad videos, where these different Hindu sadhus came on the same stage and each one of them is outdoing the other in terms of, you know, the things that they are saying. Now, my thesis is if there was one guy on that stage, um, he would have been... Uh, he would not have said the kind of extreme things he did. But there are all these people, they have to compete for the same rabid audience and therefore they are outdoing Mm -hmm. each other in wildness and it becomes competitive. Mm -hmm. And the same thing really honestly happens uh, on the left as well. So uh, you uh, have this sort of, um, uh, you have these incentives which push you the extremes, and this works within parties itself. It's not just social media. Within a particular party, how do you rise? You know, uh, the Congress, of course, is a separate case because it's not really a political party in that sense, it's a feudal setup. But within a party, how do you rise? If you look at the internecine battles in the BJP below, uh, you know, the the, the whole uh, Modisha uh, thing, it's all about swinging to the extremes. Uh, and that is incentivized in today's politics, and that is all that you get. And my sense is that the, the people you see swinging to the extremes in tribalistic ways online uh, online at least, are vocal minorities, but they are so incredibly vocal that it seems that they are all the people. But the silent majority uh, a lot of the time doesn't really give a shit. They are you know, but even that silent majority, if you look at voting patterns and trends and all of that, uh, they are definitely much more towards um, Hindutva today than uh, uh, otherwise. Now, the, the big open question here is that uh, what is a core Hindutva vote per se? Like if, if you say that today politics is so much centered around being anti-Muslim, what is a percentage of that vote? We don't know that. You know, there are, for example, in 2019, uh, a lot of the UP vote in, in in that landslide was because of welfare delivery and reasons like that. So, I think what we uh, still don't know is, you know, what percentage of the vote is because of all the things that we don't like about this political movement and what percentage of it is uh, because of other reasons which can then be addressed. But I wouldn't be too optimistic because, like you correctly pointed out, I mean, uh, both the Aam Aadmi Party and the Congress hasn't really gone out of their way to oppose these aspects of Hindutva, right? The Ahmadmi Party, in fact, is playing to the same vote bank, the exact same vote bank, only they are adding other nuances to it. But they are completely happy playing to the bigots. You look at their statements at the time Article 370 was repealed in Kashmir, for example. So, and, so if these seasoned political parties uh, have the view that the Hindu vote is too strong, you can't go against it, you have to quote it then that worries me and, and I don't know whether that yeah. is the way it is or whether it's a failure of imagination on the part of political parties to figure out other margins where they can appeal to people and get votes.
0: Yeah, well, thank you. There's again, you know, a wealth of uh, of just, just uh, uh, you know, just sort of just insights, there's strands that we can mind and I think I'll just respond briefly to a couple of points. I think you're absolutely right that I For me, I think the BJP already wound up winning when it managed to change the logic of political argument that it redefined the terms of the game where it wasn't about, you know, whether you were a Hindutva or not, but it was really about, uh, you know, to what extent did you, could you show that you agreed with some of the tenets of Hindutva? You had to play your Hinduism, right? I mean, I, you know, I'm not a, I don't consider myself an expert on Indian politics, but I've just, you know, followed by virtue of being, my, my my research and, and and being an interested you know sort of person of Indian origin in the West now for many years, followed Indian politics. At some point, of time, it was a great surprise to me when Rahul Gandhi suddenly dis- declared that he was a Shiv Bhakt, right? Uh, this was a few years ago, and the same thing. So this very sort of public performance of Hinduism that is now the logic of the of the political field. And and again, it's a really interesting point you make about psychological motivation for you know what motivates people? What are the different things that motivate people to vote for the Hindu right? There is definitely that core element of, you know, Hindutva, but it also is combined with these other things. And, uh, you know, one of the sad things in this respect, um, not in this, in this respect, but about this is that it also tells us that there's a crying need for fine journalism, nuanced on the ground journalism. And I know that, you know, I was speaking to a journalist who's actually got a really interesting book coming out on Hindutva in the, on the ground, in rural areas in India and perhaps one of the things he looks at is how does social media feed into that because that at that level, but also these fine grained I think, empirical studies about, you know, what's happening in different states. But uh, the the alarming thing is that precisely when we have a crying need for this kind of scholarship and there's always a crying need for, I think, good research of any kind scholarship or by journalists, uh, the BJP government has suddenly been cracking down on anyone you know who works on Hindu nationalism, Anyone who could come up with anything, I think that challenges their narrative. Uh, so that may be, you know, something that we can just talk about a little bit about, you know, to me, what seems like in one sense, a paradox, but in other sense, perhaps not quite a paradox. And it, it really the the kind of complete obliteration of civil society and the clamping down on any kind of free expression. You know, there's this journalist in uh, Washington, D.C., Sadanand Dhume, and uh, in 20, you know, 15, 16, 17, when we first started seeing this, he would sneer and snigger and mock at people saying that, you know, what are people talking about with freedom and impunity? People can criticize Modi. But I think the people who said that, you know, the the that things are already changing and worse is coming, I think they were on to something. And now we find that, you know, Angat Singh being denied entry because he made the film about covid. Uh, There is a fairly clear, well-documented record of the incompetence of Modi. And I don't say this because I disagree with Modi or the BJP's politics. I mean, there's, you know, uh, well-documented records of the incompetence of every government in India. But, you know, whether it's the sort of fiasco of demonetization, whether it's the tragedy of like you know what happened with with preventable deaths in COVID. These horrific images of bodies being just you know left in the in the Ganga. Uh, you know the policy with China, which is at the, this rate, you know my guess is in four years they'll be camping outside you know Modi's bedroom. But uh, you know any even a mild, mild criticism on social media gets the the um, you know the the uh, the BJP after you. So the question, sorry for this ramble, is. If Mr. Modi is so all powerful in his o- the eyes of his supporters, if he is an incarnation of Vishnu or uh, Ram as Venka and I do and Amit Shah have claimed, why this level of insecurity, you know? If we are a superpower already, because you know the things that Bhakts get joy about, Sultan of Oman gave Modi extra kiss, hug by mom, Biden was tighter, every little thing, his picture is everywhere, right? If there is this ubiquity, if he is so successful, if it is a done deal, if he has destroyed and decimated the Congress, what is the terror of free speech and criticism? Like, you know, how? What would your thoughts be on that?
1: Uh, my thoughts are: you, you're, you're right. Obviously, the environment is uh, pretty bad. Um, uh, you know. It, in the i mean i mean where does one even start but first i'll say that you know southern is a good friend of mine and uh, okay. yeah and uh, you know he did support uh, Modi for reasons I understand in 2014-2015. I thought during that period of time as someone is you know, uh, supporting that it, it be good, but there are reasonable reasons to do so. The, the, the You sure. know the, uh, the yeah. disastrous governance of the 70 years before that, everything that was happening before then. But you had to have changed your mind by the time demonetization came around because it was by that time evident that uh, these guys are a disaster uh, in every way yeah. possible. So, you know uh, at the time that I was writing out few article after article against demonetization um, so was sadhanand he called it batshit crazy and uh, he's been very uh, rigorous at uh, uh sort of uh, opposing them and writing about all the things that they do wrong since then so i think uh, you know some of the flack uh, the guy gets is a little unjustified now the thing is that there are different elements sure. to this and the yeah. here are some of the different elements one is that as i pointed out um, for a, a bunch of years i in the times of india I, I you know wrote against the modi government and it was fine you know even during demon in fact uh, uh, one of the fundamental pieces that went viral after demon slamming demon was retweeted uh, which i wrote for times was retweeted by um, uh, you know uh, both kj wal and uh, rahul gandhi so it was uh, so there was dissent happening but the point is gradually that changed now there are two ways Many different aspects to it. One is that initially at one point in time, they did not really care for English-speaking dissenters. right? So they would crack down on people in the languages because their perception was that English and Latians. Wale hai, and it's okay. Mm-hmm. And they'll crack down on dissenters. So if you look at, for example, uh, the um, uh, uh, the great freethinkers who got assassinated like Gauri Lankesh and dabulkar and so on, right. the, Gauri, they, they were Gauri, all writing yeah. in the languages. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that scared yeah. the shit out of them. They lo- just looked at Latian's elite, and I suppose they would pop you and I into that category, though both of us are Novenia yeah, Latians, yeah. uh, and uh, yeah. and say that these people are irrelevant. Now, that started changing over a period of time. One, it started changing because one thing that uh, the Prime Minister really does care about is his image abroad, right? So, whenever you find a Barkhadath writing for Washington Post or, you know, Rana Ayub writing for whoever, some foreign publication or uh, New York Times criticizing uh, you, then that gets there. Uh, rankles up and uh, then they start to you know look at those people and crack down on that and that's definitely happened what's also happened is that um, uh you know in my case uh what um and i and i mentioned this in my recent episode with samad bansal uh in, in in my case the newspaper that i wrote for um The editor called me in tears once just before my piece was about to go up and she said, look, I have to cut this sentence out because it is too anti-Modi and I have been told by my uh, higher-ups, that is the chief editor himself, that there's too much pressure from the top, right? So we got to kind of uh, uh, let this line go. And what do you want to do? Because at that time, because they knew that I am the kind of finicky columnist, even if you take change a word or two, you really need to, you know, check with me and um, uh, I'll be pretty um, um, adamant about certain things. And the rest of the piece was still anti-Modi. They was just that one line, which was very whatever. So I said, okay, cut it out. And then I thought about what should I do? I thought if I give up the space, it might go to a pro- Uh, administration person so should i give it up eventually i gave it up after writing two three more pieces another columnist who was Mm. in the exact same spot as me and who has been harassed subsequently in much worse ways including having his passport impounded chose to give up his column at the time so they Mm, so mm, sometimes mm. they notice but the crackdown was not because of me the crackdown was because it came in times of india which so they started looking at these big guys now, the one, of course, the mainstream is crumbling because of structural reasons everywhere in the world. So mainstream media was going to die anyway. But what these guys have done, and this is a political angle to this, is that all our mainstream media houses are owned by people who have other business interests as well. So you may own a newspaper, yeah. but you also own a chemical factory. Wahaan yeah, pe Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So which is why you will not really find much meaningful dissent happening from... Um, any of these major papers, you know, Bobby Ghosh was asked to leave as editor of HT, and he was doing such a good job. I, uh, well,
0: because of the, uh, the, because hate, of tracker, the hate tracker and all reasons, that. Right? And it was basically
1: yeah. the orders came from the minister, from uh, the central ministry that nikalo Esco. So overnight they got the mm-hmm. editor of editor in chief of a major newspaper changed. So that's uh, the level mm-hmm. of interference that there is. However, I haven't given up hope because um, you do have independent media which is doing it's uh, journalism fearlessly. People like, you know, Alt News and Scroll and, uh, you know, the News Minute and News Laundry and so on and so forth. And and even here, there are nuances um, between the different players and yeah. we can talk about it later. But uh, you have sort of... Um, uh, you know, technology empowers all of us. You and I can have this chat today uh, over the internet. Um, and, and that's a wonderfully empowering thing of technology. And and this would, for example, if Indira Gandhi was doing the emergency today, uh, I would certainly be in jail. I, I, you know, you are in mm-hmm. another country, so you would be fine. But uh, she locked up every dissenter, including the ent- all, all the opposition in terms of politics. And, uh, you know, we, we know what kind of happened there. And she also, like Modi, had this... Uh, Sort of obsession with what the foreign media uh, thinks of her, and she, you know, so when they started criticizing what she is doing, uh, she figured, hey, I got to redeem myself, and she was under the delusional belief that, uh, you know, that uh, she would win the elections. She called the elections. Uh, Her son Sanjay Gandhi um, uh, sort of advised her against it, but uh, she called them, and uh, and we know what. And and we're kind of lucky that uh, she suffered from that delusion and that regard for the foreign press. Otherwise, who knows. Um, so, you know, so some of us still have a voice, I think the reason we have a voice is partly because inertia, like these guys can shut us down any moment, you know, they can shut me down any moment, what is to stop them, right? It's just that, on the one hand, there might, uh, might be inertia, on the other hand, uh, you know, we are just too small fry for them, e- e- even now, you know, if this was, right, right. you know, if your yeah. podcast was an official Times of India podcast, it would not be there right but you are sitting somewhere and you are doing it and no one can stop you and that's ultimately my great hope uh, you know when it comes to raising a voice and speaking truth to power that institutions are not going to do it you know uh, if you look at the structure of all our institutions and the way the incentives are aligned do not expect anything from any of our institutions uh, but you know individuals are empowered to stand up and uh, speak up and make their voice heard and and uh, and and that is a great hope whether it is this regime in power yeah. or 10 years later some other regime
0: yeah. so wonderful like the several things again come to mind and one timothy garton ash has wonderful book 10 the 10 principles of speech for a connected world. I think that's the subtitle and he has this notion where he talks about individual word power and he's, you know, obviously he's not uh, he's not a techno utopianist, uh, but he, he does, you know, say that, of course, you know, it's everyone who's on YouTube is not going to make a billion dollars like Mr. Beast or, uh, uh, you know, I think we are past that stage uh, when, you know, to Well past that line of thinking. I I actually worked in the Indian internet industry in the late 90s and I remember that moment of when everyone believed that this would be lead to this new kind of world where, you know, all voices would ring equally true and uh, would have the same weight. So we we know that didn't happen, but the potential is definitely real. And I think that's something we have to hang on to. And, and, uh, you know, we we also hang on to stories. And uh, the reason I say that is my, you know, I think of an incident my father-in-law was Uh, You know, he was, uh, he had uh, been outspoken against the emergency in certain contexts. He's now a retired professor. Uh, He was also, he did some, you know, work with the People's Union for Civil Liberties and so on. And during the emergency, he actually had someone from the intelligence bureau, whatever the agency was actually following him. And there was a day when (laughs) he was at the bus stop and this gentleman was following him. Uh, He saw the gentleman and my, you know, the bus was late and my father-in-law had to go to college. So he decided to take a cab. So he went up to this person and said, he said, look, I know you're following me. Why don't you get into the taxi with me? And he said, the person was very civil. He said, you know, I know you're a professor, this is my job. Uh, and you know, they didn't become great buddies or something, but they kept in touch after the <laughs> emergency. So, you know, to me that in some ways, I know that, you know, it's just one incident, but it just, I, you know, one just hopes there is something beneath the institutional roles we are given. And there is something beneath ideological commitments too. I, I think of, You know, Rana Ayub, at some point of time, there was this uh, horrible incident where some, you know, people, some, again, people with loose affiliations to the Hindu right, but uh, adherence to the ideology, they morphed some pornographic images and circulated them. Uh, And the person who informed her was actually a member of the RSS. Now, you know, this doesn't mean that the RSS has, you know, sort of become the new liberal party. uh, But the fact that there is someone in there who, you know, despite being part of that structure, has some sense of you know what is beyond the pale, and uh, you know is is you know maybe that there is just a sliver of of hope out there. And as you say, if there are enough voices, the same logic that you mentioned of the uh, you know that that those uh, or what Cass Sunstein calls cyber cascades can kick in. Uh, let me move a little towards the you know global here and. Um, there's something about the contradictions of Indian communities. If we have time, I'd like to come back to. But there's a more fundamental question I'd love to get your take on, which is, you know, we see this sort of lurch to the right. Right. We And of course, there's particular local histories everywhere, like Meloni in Italy, uh, you know, Orban in Hungary, Putin, of course, with the war. Are we seeing some kind of move towards two things? One, are we seeing a move towards uh, kind of global authoritarianism? Like, has there been some, you know, long period of largely liberal peace even with exceptions that has now kind of ended. Um, And the second question which interests me particularly as a student of globalization is, are we seeing a retreat from globalization? My quick and dirty take is no, we aren't. It's a kind of you know it's part of a cyclical or a back and forth process but a more turbulent form of globalization perhaps. But you know I'd love to hear what you have to think say about both these issues. So rise to global authoritarianism, resurgence of global right and you know, is it some kind of deglobalization or retreat from globalization?
1: Yeah, so, you know, lovely questions and I'll uh, take a little uh, um, short at uh, sharing my thoughts. But first of all, what you said about uh, uh, sort of the somebody from the RSS warning, uh, Rana, is, is interesting because I think one thing that we should also not do is think of, uh, the, uh, you know, the whole Hindutva ecosystem uh, in India as one monolithic thing. You know, we often get into this conspiracy theory kind of things that is one monolithic thing, it's acting in the same way. But it's different sets of people with different kinds of incentives. And, uh, uh, you know, and and those nuances are are something that uh, one needs to uh, keep in mind, Um, uh, which is not to absolve any of them. Uh, Now, as far as these two questions are concerned it's really hard to say at a given moment in time right because we like to think of the world in teleological ways that there are that the mm. world is moving in a particular direction that the arc of justice is, the arc of history is moving towards justice or freedom or whatever and we like to think that there are right. these broad narratives you know fukuyama asking about the end of history though obviously that was a much misinterpreted essay by him but there was uh, at one point perhaps you know after the berlin wall comes down the soviet union collapses one can imagine asking that okay are we finally in uh, sort of, uh, are we going to have societies which are liberal and democratic and uh, so on and so forth? Is that game, has that game been won? Is that over? And so it's, uh, what we see today is a turn away from that completely, Uh, you know, and a turn away from globalization as well. Um, But I I agree with you that that doesn't mean um, uh, globalization is over. Now, what we don't know is, uh, you know, there's one part of me which thinks that there is something fundamental about this shift. It is not something that will revert back to some imaginary mean or something like that that there is something fundamental mm. because politics in general through the centuries uh for all of human mankind has been something that elites have participated in uh you know broadly elites set the policies, elites set the directions, and uh, so on and so forth now. It's a good thing that that is no longer the case, uh, that uh, people have been empowered by social media and by media in general and technology to express themselves. But it also means that you get into a space uh, that there is a danger of majoritarianism, uh, of um, uh, tendencies uh, coming to the fore and would these take you in an authoritarian direction because the people at large typically look how do we explain the world to ourselves we explain the world to ourselves by telling stories about it you know so elites will have different ideologies and tribes that they believe in but for most people it is simple stories that work you know and like in 2016 trump Uh, you know, willingly or otherwise uh, hit upon this strain where he figured that, okay, if I need to explain to middle America, where have your uh, jobs gone? I can give them two explanations. I can say your jobs are being shipped to China or I can say that immigrants are taking your job. So now you have an anti-free trade, anti-globalization stand there and an anti-immigration stand there. And both these explanations are rubbish. They are not true. The the truth is so nuanced. Mm. But you try to express that nuanced truth, only elites will understand you. Uh, The simple narratives uh, work uh, for common people, you know, so my worry is that simple narratives will often be simplistic, and will, uh, 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 you know, play to people's worst instincts, such as, you know, such as tribalistic thinking, such as dividing the world into us and the other, and so on and so forth. So, Is that a fundamental uh, shift that has happened? I don't know. I mean, it's a question. I'm not even uh, theorizing. I'm just saying that, uh, you Mm -hmm. know, these are Mm -hmm. possibilities that worry me. I would like to think that uh, it's not a permanent shift uh, that we can swing it back, even if this specific structural change has taken place. Look, we contain multitudes. So someone who contains Mm -hmm. within her bigoted instincts or... Uh, uh, you know, so on and so forth, uh, will also contain better instincts, they will want a better life for the children, they will want prosperity, they will, Mm. all of these things. So I think the challenge of politicians and thinkers today is to figure out ways to appeal to the better angels of their nature. And, uh, you know, and maybe that changes the game. As far as globalization is concerned, at the political level, uh, yes, it's a problem. Uh, You know, with the US's anti-free trade uh, moves, especially under Trump, with China becoming, uh, you know, such a a, a bogeyman for everyone and and so on and so forth. So, uh, unfortunately, sadly, it seems like globalization has been hurt a bit. However, I think that, um, um, uh, you know, it's been helped in ways that are much greater and irreversible. And by that, I mean the technology which connects all of us to everybody else. Like, I have lost count of the suburban housewives I have met here who watch K-dramas all day, right? And uh, (laughs) when I say I have lost count, I'm not going around all day meeting suburban housewives, but uh, I'm a middle-aged man and I can't count too high anymore. Uh, So, um, uh, so, you, you know, I think... In a certain sense, culture has become globalized. Our connectivity has become globalized. Like, I no longer live in just India and you no longer live in just the US. You know, we are not restricted by geography anymore. The fact that you and I can talk and know each other and, you know, uh, record this together is globalization. You know, even if you're both uh, Indian. So, so there, I think that is irreversible. You're not going to change that. But... um, so we have a lot of big questions up and ad you know if someone 50 years later listens to this podcast they will see us as confused and incoherent which is exactly what we are because there's no other way we are in the middle of things we don't know how things are going to turn in the out moment. Here, so. yeah
0: yeah well it's yeah i i completely agree with you you know on uh, i don't think that genie is going back in the bottle and one of the obvious ironies is that all these anti globalization uh, you know movements like whether it's you think of Brexit or the Trump vote uh, in 2016 in you know places like Michigan, uh, the Rust Belt, deindustri- which had suffered from deindustrialization, but which the Democrats had always taken for granted, or in Italy, uh, or even the Hindu right, which to some extent you know the, the the some segment of the population which is in part I think projecting a kind of um, anger at being left out of the sort of goodies the the language they use the discourse they use is so similar is so standardized you know they borrow these terms from each other so the language of anti anti global populism is itself kind of global but i you know we, we, we moving sort of towards a couple of other questions as we wind down one of the things you mentioned earlier about the notion of you know we contain we contain multitudes notion of selfhood and that that plenitude of the self in terms of you know what people are politically in terms of their aspiration actually leads almost perfectly to a question I wanted to ask. That, you know, what's your take on the this wokeness? You know, whether we understand wokeness as, uh, in one sense, you know, perhaps it's caricatured as being uh, a generational thing. Perhaps it's you know unfairly or fairly described as being the the view of a very small. Uh, you know minority on the left which holds you know the left or the progressive or liberals whatever you want to call them hostage because it seems to me that there is that kind of absolutism and uh, part of the problem again especially in spaces like twitter if you you know claim or you affect or you you uh, you know uh, uh, identify yourself as as sharing certain values which may be called plural or liberal or inclusive is that if you don't toe the line from the very beginning you're suspect and in a sense, your views are predetermined by your identity. I mean, I've always been a person who's thought that there is been a very good space for identity politics. That identity politics did, you know, draw attention to a model of uh, to the limitations of a certain old model of politics and so on. But for instance, you know, I'll give you just personal examples that. This is right about the time of the year where if you wish someone happy Diwali, and by the way, wish you happy Diwali <laughs> and wish our listeners happy Diwali, you become a, you know, the, you know, you're a Savarna fascist and a casteist, right? So you can't even wish anyone Diwali. You can't even say that you celebrate Diwali. The fact of celebrating Diwali or wishing one becomes an act of oppression. To me it's that it's, you know, to use the term oppression also so loosely in some ways really takes away from other kinds of, you know, violence, um, understanding that, you know, rituals, cultures you know, are all ideologically sort of enmeshed. Or, you know, again, just a personal example, not 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 to make this about me, but years ago, I just mentioned something about the the television series Girls. And, you know, I said that there was something I found is particularly ethnocentric and it wasn't reflexive enough. And, you know, some grad student called, you know, you're misogynistic for not liking Lena Dunham. And this, you know, so what are your thoughts about this? Because it seems to me like a. Uh, you know, destructive tendency, and I'm not I'm not one with all the critiques of wokeism that you see some of these you know stand up comedians going on rants because they they don't get to poke fun at trans people. That's not the line I'm towing, but it seems to me it's cut off a kind of way of thinking and conversation, and it's it's led to a really limited idea of the self.
1: No, I completely share your concerns and I think what happens on both the right and the left are that people are drawn into these ideological tribes for reasonable reasons. For example, you could be, let's say, um, a conservative and get drawn to the Hindutva people because you care about your culture and you want that sense of community and all of that. uh, And and the the bigotry and everything else that happens then comes uh, later. So you could be drawn into it for good reasons, but once you're in all that can become part of the package deal. And I think there's, um, uh, you know, a similar danger with wokeness in the sense that, look, all liberals... Uh, believe in what? Believe fundamentally in individual rights, that every individual has to uh, uh, you know, you have to care for their freedom and their dignity. And part of uh, respecting and regarding someone an an individual's dignity is to accept the fact that they contain multitudes, that they're not one thing, that you can't tie them down to one narrative and that they have agency. Now, I think what uh, a danger in some identity politics is that it, it becomes essentializing, that you can not escape your identity of birth that whatever that identity of birth is whether it is Hindu or Muslim or Savannah or this or that you know, you are then bound up in a narrative of oppression or a narrative of victimhood where uh, implicitly your individual agency is being disregarded your circumstances are being disregarded everything else that is part of the multitudes that you are, they are all being uh, disregarded and you have to go along with this narrative and I find that there is, um, uh, you know I think identity is really you When you are analyzing the world, when you look at structures of oppression and where things have gone wrong and all of that, identity is useful. But then the way out of all the problems created by this kind of thinking is then to focus on individual rights and individual freedom and just to focus on that. But if you enter tribal warfare between A group and B group, uh, then... That's not helpful, that is toxic, and it is not even helpful to the people within, um, uh, uh, you know, within those ideologies. And I call it intellectual laziness because what you're really doing is, in a complex world, you're choosing a simple narrative, right? That if, uh, for example, if you don't like um, some um, uh, female character or some series or whatever you were talking about, you know, it really becomes easy to slap a narrative onto that and say, oh, he's anti-woman, Right. Or if you think Vinod Kamli was not a good batsman and, uh, you know, not as good as Sindhulkar, it's easy to slap a narrative to that and say, oh, you're casteist. Right. And those narratives are so reductive. They are so uh, insulting, not just to the people that you're forcing those narratives on, but also to you yourself. And those are so lazy. That's the point I want to make. Got to realize that the world is complicated if you just have one hammer for every nail. Then, uh, then you are, in a sense, hobbling yourself. You are not seeing the rest of what is going on. You are not seeing the rest of what is uh, happening around you. So it becomes really simple then to just... You know, if that person's identity happens yeah. to be something that you can attack, it becomes really easy. That okay, just smash him with that, and the, that's and and that results in a distressing tendency that we see from both the right and the left today. It's not just a so wokis, right, mind right. you. You know, I do say both wokes b- yeah. and bhaks are all are so alike in so many different ways. But today, politically in India, b- bhaks are in power, and the, and the, therefore a greater yeah. danger. So we got to uh, you know accept that. But uh, what therefore happens is that the discourse on social media reflects this in the sense that both, both the people on these sides are attacking people all the time. You know, Shekhar Gupta is this, or so-and-so is this, and Ram Guha gets attacked by both sides, Barkhadat gets attacked by um, both sides. Uh, you know, and all these three people are fine people in different ways. But, but they all get attacked from both sides. and you, And I would just say that if you're online... You know, I think it is okay to hold a public figure to account, especially someone like a Narendra Modi who is being, you know, our taxpayers' money go into it, it's a democracy, he has got to be accountable. But apart from figures like that, apart from figures in politics and so on, why are you attacking people all the time? You know, let's talk about ideas, let's talk about issues, let a discussion be... Um, you know, on those subjects, instead of attacking people all the time, and so much of the time, people get attacked on the basis of identity, and you're always looking for cheap gotcha moments, you know, uh, you said this then, you're saying this now, and so on and so forth. And I think that that uh, poisons the discourse. I think that we should always assume goodwill of everyone and not behave as if by default, uh, you know, they are bad faith actors and so on and so forth. So a lot of our discourse is also kind of poisoned by this. Now, the point is, a lot of the people who uh, get drawn to wokeism would get drawn because of, you know, the attractive rhetoric that it, it appears to be compassionate towards marginalized people and so on and so forth. And mm-hmm. that is the essence of liberalism anyway, that we have to be, um, uh, you know, compassionate towards marginalized people and uh, respect the individual rights of every single person and their agency and their dignity. But unfortunately, a lot of wokeism is actually deeply illiberal uh, and uh, you know and and you know, you said it so well in your question that I feel like I almost don't need to add to that
0: <laughs> well, you know it's it's you know, it's a wonderful response, and I think what you're uh you know articulating among other things is is exactly you know something I've found right throughout your work, which is a spirit of real intellectual generosity, and there is you know without wanting to absolve oneself of blame. I know that social media tends to do that. I'm actually very happy I'm not on active on social media and haven't been for a while. So we've got a couple of minutes left. The one thing I want to like just mention, I want to end this on a slightly uh, humorous note. Uh, uh, You know, your blogs and the way you write is also very funny. And I remember years ago I read something I'd be burst out laughing, actually, because I had the same used to have the same experiences. You said that there was a story which you featured and you said the moment I read like the first three lines of the headline, I knew this was in India. And the story was basically that there was a train which stopped and the conductor and engine driver told passengers, Chalo Niklo and they were made to push the train. (laughs) So, and you know, something similar happened to me. There was some poor chap, some crocodile in a village pond, uh, I don't know, Balaram, Nambi, I don't know what his name was. He uh, he was 75, he passed away, he was vegetarian. So now is there something which is an India story according to you? Like what according to you is, uh, you know, I know we are getting into sort of exceptionalist territory, but what would you call an India story where, you know, you hear like, you just start hearing the headline, you know, this can only happen in India.
1: Yeah, I don't even remember that train story or writing about it. But, uh, you know, both of us are kind of getting on in years and it is possible that one forgets uh, things. Yeah, Rohit. Uh, I can't think of a funny story for you right now. The first story that came to mind when you asked what is an India story is uh, um, a story a friend called uh, Veena Venugopal uh, uh, tweeted today. Uh, yeah, you saw yeah. that, right? Where? Yeah.
0: Um, oh, I didn't see. I I know who she is. She used to work. Yeah, she's yeah. A she's a journalist. Yeah, yeah. So uh,
1: she tweeted the story about how there was some school, some exam was happening. I think one... 12-year-old boy accompanied his sister to the classroom. So it, he, he wasn't a student of that school. He accompanied her. She was giving an exam there. And uh, he threw a chit at her at one point from the window or something. He wanted her to cheat. Now, the chit hit another girl. And that girl thought that it's a love letter to her. Presumably, she didn't open it and read it. But she went out and told her brothers. And then her brothers and her family came. They caught this 12-year-old kid who had th- um, thrown the chit and they killed him right and oh, and this, mean, this this yeah. is an India story, and I'm sorry, you want a funny story yeah, these, yeah. Are fu- yeah. these are no, not fun- these are not funny no, no. terms. and i yeah these are yeah. Uh, you know and and yeah. th- you know this is what it is, this is our society, this has yeah. nothing to do with politics yeah. And, the-
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah, and yeah and you know you're right because this is actually uh, one of the many things also I thought we'd talk about, but of course we. You know we had such a wonderful conversation about other things uh you know if if in some ways you know a dismaying conversation given the the state of of things in india particularly just the incredible level of violence in indian society right how pervasive violence is i even all the years i lived there i lived, still live more than my ha- half of my life here in a few years i would have lived more than half of my life outside but I would sense it even then and it would seem to me a big contradiction that we spoke about being a non-violent society but this routine violence right which pervades everything which is structured and you know inflected by an inflects caste and you know questions and gender and and social class and so on so yeah so you know it is it's a it's a sobering note and i take your point well that these are not you know funny times and or humorous times, and and that perhaps is a, is a note to end on. I'll uh, maybe just end by asking you, first, I want to thank you. Uh, you know, thank you so much and for doing this at ch- such short notice and really for all the technical advice as well and helping us sort of get our game up. We've been operating sort of at a low tech level. And thanks to the patience of all our listeners. Uh, so I know you're a voracious reader and you read very widely. Just a quick way to end. Uh, what is something interesting that you're reading currently?
1: Oh, uh, currently, I'm reading a bunch of different things. But uh, if your uh, listeners want recommendations, then given all the things that we've been talking about, I feel I should give recommendations that kind of, uh, uh, you know, uh, give insight on all of these on uh, and books that I've learned a lot about India from. Uh, th- one of the finest books I uh, read last year in the course of recording my episodes was a book by Peggy Mohan called Wanderers, Kings and Merchants. And this really, in a sense, tells uh, the history of India, including the ancient history of India, through our languages and how our languages evolved and Wonderful. so on and so forth. Mm. And it's a masterpiece. It's just a great book. She was on my show as well, but I would recommend buy the book. It's it's a great book. That's one great book. Uh, two books that go together for me whenever... Um, you know, in terms of understanding uh, our deep history. Uh, One is Tony Joseph's Early Indians. Uh, I'm I'm sure everyone's read that or they should have, which really looks at indisputable uh, genetic evidence of uh, you know, our prehistory, uh, so to say, where we came from and whatever. And, uh, the, the, and the Big Bang uh, sort of um, uh, revelation from that uh, book is that once all the migrations to India had uh, happened, you know, you had the Indus Valley and you had different migrations, including the Aryan migration happening, which, by the way, is indisputably proved by the uh, evidence now. Uh, you You know, there was, in a sense, a kind of party going on for a long, long time, for centuries, until suddenly, two millennia ago, uh, about 2000 years ago, that party ended in the sense that the caste system became dominant, you had severe endogamy, which led David Reich uh, uh, to say that India, you know, if you're looking for large populations, look at the Han Chinese, but India is really a collection of many, many small populations. And that is what caste endogamy Mm. does, which also leads to incentives for female seclusion and so on and so forth. So, to understand many of our deepest problems and where we come from, that's a wonderful book. And another great book, which to me is a companion book to Tony's book, is India Moving by Chinmay Tumbe, which is a documentation over the centuries of migrations within India. And a remarkable book and... um, uh, and Jinmei is just a, a fantastic scholar. And the big TIL from that book for me is that the majority of internal migration within India happens because of marriage. Women get married and they move away to their husband's wow. village or town or whatever. Right? And this is... It, it's something that's bare thinking about because, uh, you know, m- most of us, people like, you know, including you and I, Rohit, think of history and society in such male-centric ways. And this kind of helps you take a step back and shows you another layer another gaze through which to look at it that I think that if you apply that gaze of what is uh, what has life been like for Indian women you get a completely different answer from the typical male centric gaze that uh, we tend to have otherwise It's
0: wonderful There's, these are all fantastic recommendations and again open out possibilities for like infinite more conversations right multitudes well thank you so much Amit really really appreciate it. Since I'm piggybacking off your technology, I'm just going to wait for you to stop the recording, right? So, I'll I'll do that.
1: I'll stop the recording and I'll thank you for inviting me on. It's so good to talk to you, and we should really meet and uh, have uh, uh, a bunch of meals. How many meals did we have that day?
0: Three three meals. We will. Many more meals. Absolutely. All right, Amit. Take care. Thanks. Thank you.